Well, tonight we have Scott Bailey and J.T. Young coming to be ordained to the gospel ministry. This is such a privilege and an honor for Fisherville Baptist Church to play a role in their growth and maturity and preparation to the gospel ministry. And I have gotten to know both of these men. I've known Scott longer. I had him in class. He would even sit in classes that he didn't take uh, with me. He would just uh, sit and observe and listen and audit. You remember that class you audited? And, and then I had the opportunity uh, even to teach, I think, Linnell. Weren't you in one of those classes? Oh, you audited. Okay, in that time. So I was teaching you that time, and you audited. So basically, they're both freeloaders. Uh, I'm just kidding. I'm just picking. Um, and my kids adore them. And they, they were talking about how Scott, and, and they said this with the greatest affection. They were saying how, as a Sunday school teacher, he was also a disciplinarian. There was, you know, you didn't, if you, if you push the bounds in his class, dad was going to find out. And so I think that is wonderful. And they love you and they love you both. And the, 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 as you said this morning, not everyone's called to do what you're doing. Um, that is a calling. That is what God has called you to do. But I can't help but be impressed and, and, and so grateful to God's grace on your lives. And you relocated. You both, one of you, were, you're from California and you're from Canada. Both of you from other countries. And, uh, <laughs> and, 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 and y'all both came together, got married, uh, had a precious baby, and then moved to Dallas. Didn't know anyone there to be trained uh, as missionaries. And now you're willing to go. Not just willing, you're embracing it. You're excited about going to Papua New Guinea to reach a people group that has never heard the gospel. And we get to play a role in that. That's just unbelievable. That, that's what church is about. This, that's what the church is to be about. It's the Great Commission. And, and I'm humbled by that. Uh, somewhere in the mid-1950s, Southern Baptist churches became community centers. And they lost sight of the, the Great Commission. And now the Great Commission is being regained in our churches. And it's beautiful to see. It's not just happening here. It's happening in many, many Southern Baptist churches. And churches certainly outside the Southern Baptist Convention. And it's just, it, it is glorious to see. And I'm so grateful for the calling on your life. And, and then JT, uh, you and Laura came in and your family. Um, and just uh, the gifts are so evident on both of you. On your whole family, your daughter's an evangelist wherever she goes, and um, it's, it's such an honor to be a to play in the Providence, uh, to, to have lived in Seattle, Washington, and then somehow you end up at Fisherville Baptist Church, uh, and your dad made the joke, drove by our church and said, won't you go there? And you ended up there, <laughs> and, and you have, you Laura has been so significant. She basically, uh, with Bill, led our VBS this year, had an amazing VBS. And now God is evidently calling you away to pastor. We knew that was going to happen. And I'm just grateful that we have that opportunity to hear from both of you tonight. Uh, it is an honor. And so, Scott, if you would come and share your testimony and then... 
JT will share his. Good evening, everybody. It's good to see you all. And I'm grateful for every one of you to be here. And as I said this morning, so grateful for this church. Uh, I've never been so uh, just impressed by the work of grace in this church and how um, this body just has uh, amazed me and what it looks like to be the people of God in amazing ways. And so I am uh, just in such admiration of this church. I brag about this church everywhere I go and to everybody I talk to who obviously have never heard of Fisherville. And people always wonder, why would you be in Louisville, Kentucky? Uh, coming from Canada, it's kind of seems strange. Why Kentucky of all places? Um, but uh, when I was young, my parents were committed to the church at the time, and uh, they introduced me to Jesus, and I had some kind of understanding of uh, relationship with Him, and that was kind of the gist of it. And my parents left the church when I was about eight years old, stopped going to church. I started going to a public school and started uh, just being exposed to that and really having all kinds of doubts thrown in at me what I was uh, taught as a child and nothing really to back that up. And so I started to really just become agnostic at best, atheist at worst, didn't really believe in God and really just lived in complete rebellion to God. And my parents really had no restraints on the way that I had lived. And... Uh, it wasn't until around, uh, I was 19 years old, and I thought um, I was going to make a career out of music, and I decided I would go to the seeker-sensitive church. Um, God does use those to some degree in terms of bringing me in the doors and bringing me around people who believe the gospel, uh, but I made some friends at a seeker-sensitive church, and I went there only because I thought, hey, I could get... I could play drums. I had a big performance. I could play drums and get more experience. But God used that, that selfish desire, and that, even that really idol in my heart to bring me around people who worship God. And it was when I was going through an incredible time of just, uh, just depression, just so empty, all the things of the world that you can imagine somebody dives into to mask the emptiness. I, do I dove into it head first, and I just realized how little that satisfied. But... Maybe God could heal this brokenness that I felt inside of me. And so I called a friend that I'd met, and I just told them about what I was going through. And he was very kind and prayed for me and gave me a New Testament. I began reading it. And as I continued just still to pursue, maybe I still thought, you know, maybe a career in music, I pursued that. And I met a guy at work who just was there to be salt and light. He felt God had brought him to that place, and he didn't know why, but he was ready to share the gospel with anybody that showed any remote interest or had no interest. He was ready to shove it down everybody's throat if he could, uh, but, I was, but the Lord had worked in my life, and I was ready to understand the gospel, and uh, so he communicated the gospel to me, brought me to a Baptist church, which is how I started becoming into a, a Baptist circle. This is a very small church. I'd never seen a church that preached the Bible expositionally before. I had never seen a church that was so small, but yet so just uh, full of joy and, and uh, so humble, all these kinds of things. I just knew that there was something different about this church. And um, it was while I was there and began to share the gospel with people, I was excited about what God was doing in my life. That pastor discipled me and baptized me, and the man who brought me there was really a big mentor in my life. And while I was sharing the gospel, and people started to just kind of maybe notice that 
I was really passionate about people knowing Jesus, and so they thought, you know, maybe God's calling you into ministry. Maybe you should think about going on a mission trip or something. And I thought, I do have this all of a sudden, this new desire that I, I want to be able to tell people about Christ all the time. And it was, I felt like my job was getting in the way because I had to work. I couldn't just talk about Jesus all the time. It was frustrating. And so I uh, decided to go. Uh, I wanted to go on a mission trip as long as a reasonable amount of time. My pastor told me about the IMB. had this amazing program that you basically go on the Southern Baptist dime pretty much. You had to pay a very small amount. I thought that sounds perfect for somebody who makes $10 an hour. So uh, I had pursued that and God's providence. I wanted to go to Africa. I knew that, but I thought that would be wrong motive if I just want to go to Africa to make disciples. So I decided I wouldn't apply for any position in Africa. And uh, Africa's, Papua New Guinea's not in Africa, by the way. <laughs> if you're wondering where Papua New Guinea is, it's not in Africa. Uh, but I, uh, I, I went, uh, I, I applied for a job in Malaysia, one in, uh, I don't know, China or whatever it might be. And all those doors got shut. They should have told me I got a response in three weeks. It took, I think it took six months for them to tell me where they're going to place me. I called them, and they said, you know, all those places aren't available anymore, but we do have a place in Tanzania. I said, that sounds great. Where's Tanzania? <laughs> so it was in Africa, and I thought that was just God's providence. And while I was there, the Lord just affirmed that I felt at home. It was amazing. I just felt at home being able to be around these people and being able to share the gospel and disciple and start Bible studies and all that kind of stuff. And I just saw not only fulfillment, but also just fruitfulness. And I wanted to stay. I couldn't stay. They said, you need, you need to get training so you can go on the, on the field full time. So I went to Bible college in Canada. And while I was there, I met my wife. And we wanted to get married. So we came down to Kentucky because I heard of Southern Baptist Seminary. And I thought, if I want to go to seminary, that's a school I want to go to. And so we went there. And while, while there and uh, being a, around everything and just being exposed and really just seeking the Lord, what, why do we have? We have this burden for missions. But I also want to do other, I want to preach and do other things. I didn't know where my gifting would really fit. And um, it wasn't until sometime in seminary that we just started thinking, what about Bible translation? I love languages. I realized that there are so many people that didn't even have a Bible. I go overseas to church plant to do missions or, you know, evangelize. But if I go to an unread people group and they don't even have a Bible, I got to start there. They got to have a, some scriptures to build the church upon. And so, uh, that's when, and Linnell all of a sudden was, I don't know why, but I'm excited about Bible translation. <laughs> and they're just totally changed. I said, yes, let's do that. Let's go where my wife is going to be fulfilled and flourish, and, and then we can both enjoy doing that. And so that's what brought us to Dallas, and uh, we pursued, we joined Wycliffe, and um, the Lord just kind of led us to Papua New Guinea uh, based on a lot of different factors. I won't take up more of your time, but... Um, Papua New Guinea is just a beautiful place, amazing people that are lost and need Christ, need the Word of God. And so we're excited to go there, and we're so excited that this church that we love so much gets to come with us. We get to bring you to Papua New Guinea as this church, as you are emotionally invested, you're prayerfully invested. Some of you in the church are even financially invested, which is amazing. And so we're just so grateful that you, this whole church, our ministry partners with us, and um, yeah, anyways, I love you. <laughs> thank you, Scott, and again, thank you for that word you preached to us, to us this morning. 
encouraged us. And JT preached a powerful word last Sunday night. We're, we're, uh, we just have an opportunity to, to lay hands on some very gifted and godly men. And we're so grateful for that. JT, if you would come and share. I have to admit, I always feel funny bringing notes up with me to tell my own story. Um, but the, there's a reason for that, and it's really captured when I sat down with the, uh, the elders and the other ordained men last week to go through uh, the questionnaire process. And Pastor Brian started it off asking for the testimony like he usually does, but the way he asked me was telling. He said, JT, I know you've got about a two-hour testimony. Can you tell these gentlemen just like a 15 or 20-minute version? So the, the notes are for your benefit more than mine, because uh, I know that you probably want to go home at some point tonight. And he was, he was, he was true. We, how we ended up at Fisherville, and we are so grateful as a family to be here, both for all of you and the love that you've shown us, but then the leadership. And while I haven't sat in any of Brian's classes, I told him this last week, and I was being honest about it. I have learned more about pastoring and about preaching from sitting here at this church than I have in my seminary classes. Those are extraordinarily helpful, but I really have learned how do you do exegesis? How do you go ahead and preach the word? So it's a real blessing, and we did end up here sometime after midnight on a dark, rainy day in March. My dad and I drove past here um, going to a house I had never seen except for on the internet. Why in Fisherville? I didn't know, and there really was this joke of, hey, there's a church. Why don't you go there? And we did come here, and we've never been to another church in Louisville. So it's been wonderful. So I, uh, I've been married to Laura for 27 years. I've got three children, the oldest of which is married, and we have a granddaughter back in Seattle area. My son lives out in Portland. He's training to be a firefighter, and our daughter Anna has been here. And as Brian said, she is a wonderful evangelist. Um, I grew up in a, in a Christian home. I was very blessed that way. Both of my parents were, were Christian. My earliest memories were growing up in a, a Baptist church. We, um, I grew up in a very small town and went to church in kind of a neighboring town where we could go. My dad was a deacon. He was a Sunday school teacher. He was super involved, and, um, and we loved it. And I, I, I was able to grow up under one pastor who was at that church for 25 years, um, so I always knew him, and he always knew me. So I, my, I remember, you know, my conversion experience isn't wild. I remember my mom praying with me when I was a, a young child, but I had the benefit of having a senior pastor who would give me time. I was a very inquisitive kid. I liked to study a lot, and he did give me a lot of time, uh, Dr. Jim Conrad, and, and, um, and so he did that, I was, I was baptized there, and, and he started pushing and telling me that he thought I was called to ministry when I was in my late teens, when I was in high school. I was, and probably still am, an extraordinarily shy person, super introverted. And the thought of being in front of people killed any desire um, to actually step out and, and go to school and, and pursue anything in ministry. And I, so I, I went to, to undergrad. Um, Laura and I got married after her sophomore year and kind of did the undergrad thing at University of Washington and went to law school in Tennessee. And all during that time, Laura and I were both very involved in church. Um, she, probably more than me, I, because of school. And then once I started working, uh, work really became my life. 
right? A career was my, my primary motivator, and that's what I pushed after and, and what I excelled at. And all for the next 20 years, we would go through these periods of being super involved in churches and then me kind of pulling back and not being involved. And when we'd get super involved, I'd get convinced that I needed to be in ministry. We would talk about it. We'd pray about it. Um, we'd consider walking away, but the, the lure of, of work kind of kept me in that, um, that place, particularly the, the fear, frankly, of public speaking. But there's a secondary element of fear, even when I was young, and that was a feeling of not really being worthy of being up and actually telling people about the gospel or preaching through the Bible. And the older you get and the more time you spend in a secular career, the less worthy you start feeling to stand up and actually teach the Word of God, right? So that, that also playing in the back of my mind. Um, there's a sort of fast-forwarding, a whole confluence of events with our family, some challenges, some difficulties, and, and things sort of all came together at a point in time when my oldest daughter was at, at school at the University of Washington studying biology, and as often happens in those environments, very anti-Christian, she decided she was not a believer anymore. Um, and that was a horrifying and terrifying experience for me and sucked me right back into how can that happen. And so I started studying and praying and was right back in it. At the same time, Anna had gotten involved in a youth program at a church. So I started getting very involved at that church as well. My oldest daughter came back around on her own, but as she was doing that, she came to me with all of her questions. And some of it was as simple as I grew up reading the NIV, and she picked up an ESV Bible on her own. I'm like, what is this thing? Right? So I read the ESV Bible. I mean, it's, this sort of shows you that I wasn't quite plugged in at that, that time. Um, but between the two of them, I would say that was the catalyst that God used to reignite a fire to get back involved. Um, so I can still remember walking with Laura and telling her, we're really called to ministry, it's time. And, uh, and that was tough. She'd seen this up and down of being called but going back to, to the career. So she said, let's give it some time. We prayed and prayed and prayed. We became convinced and we came up with our own five-year plan. We five more years of work, and off we would go. And I always call this my plan is I'm at this stage, the, the man who tells Jesus, uh, let me go bury my parents, and then I'll come back and follow you. Right? And, and when we really committed, when we were really on our, he said, we will go where you want us to go. I will do whatever you want us to do. Um, I, don't, I don't care about titles. I don't care about what that looks like. That five-year plan turned into about a two-month plan, and things closed up fast everywhere. Doors closed, other doors opened. Um, I, was, I was leading a men's ministry program at that point at the church that allowed me to dedicate all of my time to that. We were going to spend a year, I was going to spend a year volunteering to sort of confirm that pastoral call. Three months later, I was in seminary and then fairly rapidly um, decided to transfer. I started someplace else, transferred to Southern because the one thing that, that really underlies everything I believe and teach and how I approach is the inerrancy and infallibility and sufficiency of Scripture. And I knew that that's what Southern stood for. And so I shifted, and we packed up, and we uh, moved to Louisville. And there were lots of little challenges and things that popped up in the way, uncertainties, and then opportunities to move back into the secular career. And there's a verse that 
Luke 9, 62, no one, puts, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And that, that really is a motivator for me. It's never looked back, fully committed to ministry, fully committed to this call. And uh, God's providence is amazing, both in bringing us here so that we could learn and grow with you all, but also in opening doors in places that we never would have considered going and things that we would never do. So... I think I, I, I can keep going. I didn't even get through what I wrote down to, to limit it. But, uh, but before long, I'm going to get the, you know, the shepherd's hook and yanked off here. So. All day long. That's, but when I said 15 minutes last week, that was for their benefit. <laughs> well, if you would turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy 3. I know it seems a little disconcerting. I'm starting a sermon at 6.35, but we will be, be, we will be out at a res- reasonable hour, I promise. Which hour, I won't say. You know, it's interesting. There's a lot of confusion about the offices of the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. But simply put, the scripture gives us two offices. The office of pastor, elder, overseer. All three terms refer to the same office and deacon. Now, why do we need two offices? Well, the elders, the pastors, the overseers, that those are the ones who have been commissioned to lead the church spiritually. Uh, and so they serve by leading. The deacons meet the practical needs so that the spiritual needs and spiritual leadership can, can function without hindrance. All right? Now, I want to give you a couple of texts. In Acts chapter 20, Paul is saying goodbye to the elders. It says in verse 17 of chapter 20 in Acts, he is saying goodbye to the elders, the church. There, he had spent some two to three years in Ephesus, probably more like three. And he says in verse 28, to these elders, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So he's speaking to the elders and he says, the Spirit has made you overseers. Now, that word is episcopos, episcopos. Epi, meaning over, scopos, meaning to scope, to, to watch over. So that's what an overseer is. He's, he watches over the flock. It's been translated in the King James as bishop. But because of the loaded language, our newer translations translate that as overseer. And notice what it says. It says in that passage, he says, to care for the church of God. That verb, to care, is the verb form for the noun pastor. To pastor the church of God. So in that passage, you've got all three terms used for the same office. Elder, overseer, and pastor. Uh, If you look over in 1 Peter, Peter is writing in chapter 5, I exhort the elders among you, verse 2, shepherd the flock of God. That verb shepherd is the verb form for a pastor. To pastor, the verb form for pastor. Pastor 
the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. That is overseeing. That's the verb form for overseer. And so here in this passage, Peter sees that office as overseer, pastor, and elder. And then when you look at Philippians, when Philippians is, as Paul writes Philippians, notice who he addresses in chapter 1. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. And so there he sees three parties in the local church. The saints, the believers, the overseers, and the deacons. All right? And so I think that's vital when we think in terms of the two offices. Now, I I understand that Scott is being commissioned as a missionary. But I can assure you that any missionary who is biblically qualified has to meet the qualifications of a pastor. Because what Scott is going to be doing is he's going to be essentially evangelizing the future pastors of the people in whom he, he has been called, in whom Linnell has been called. And so he is going to have to match the qualifications of an overseer. And so if you would, if you look with me in chapter uh, 3 of 1 Timothy, the Apostle Paul says, and the first thing we see here is the overseer must be above reproach. This, this is vital. Above reproach in the church, verses 1 to 3. Look with me in verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. Now, when Paul says that, he says it five times in his letters, in the pastoral epistles. The first time he said it was in verse 15 of chapter 1. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners. Now, we all recognize how important that statement is. This is a trustworthy statement. Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners. The second time he says this is a trustworthy statement, he's referring to overseers. Now, why is that important? It tells us that overseers are vital to the health of a church. It's also important that we understand at the individual level, I cannot live the Christian life if I'm not under the care of an overseer. There's a reason God has given the church overseers. And he says, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires... A noble task. Now I want you to note those two verbs. Aspires and desires. I think he uses two different terms that are virtually synonymous to drive home the fact that a man called to this office has to long for this office. It is a spirit birth desire. Because if, that's, if that desire is not birthed by the spirit... You will quit. It is absolutely the case. You will quit. Because there's nothing harder on the planet, vocationally, than the office of overseer. You're always under critique. You can never do enough for some people. And you are just one man. You're finite and you're falling on top of that. And so, one of the qualifications of an overseer essentially is this aspiration and this desire that never goes away 
In fact, the verbs there are in the present tense. So you'll sometimes see people at school. They went to a conference and, and they, they saw these men on the stage at a conference. And they, it, it looks glamorous to them. And they think, well, this is what I want to do with my life. But that's not reality. That, that, a conference is not reality. Reality is at the local church level. There's no glory in that. It's a burden 24-7. Um, and if God has not birthed those desires in you, you will quit. And so it's interesting that he begins with desires. William Perkins, who was the, the preaching prof of the Puritans, he was the most influential Puritan with regard to preaching, <coughs> says this. Your conscience must judge your willingness and the church your ability. And so here you, you recognize that there's only, there's no making sense of this desire except that it was birthed by the Spirit. Both of you are highly educated. There's no making sense of what you want to do except that it's the calling that God has given and birthed in you. Both of you could make a lot of money doing something else. You have that kind of education. You have those kind of gifts, those kinds of talents. And I can assure you, JT is taking a massive pay cut to go into the pastoral ministry, having been an attorney. It makes no sense on paper. And yet, it's the calling that, that has been birthed in your heart, and it will not go away. <clears throat> and Scott, to go to an unreached people group, of people who does not even have the language, the Bible, and to invest the one life you have, you and your precious wife, into that people group. There's no making sense of that, except of a spirit-birthed aspiration. And so he begins with that. That brings us to verse 2. Therefore, it's interesting here that <coughs> here in verse 1 he talks about the noble task in light of that noble task, he says, therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. Now, I believe that this term, above reproach, is an umbrella term. Paul will often use an umbrella term that kind of uh, serves as the essence of all that he's saying. And then he'll fill it out. For instance, in Galatians 5... He says the fruits of the Spirit. No, he says the fruit of the Spirit is love. That's the fruit of the Spirit. How do you know you are filled with the Spirit? You are loving. You, you, you demonstrate a cruciform love. Uh, you, you, it's, this kind of cruciform love is the unswerving commitment to the redemptive good of others at the, at the expense of self. That's cruciform love. He says the fruit of the Spirit is love, and then he fills it out. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. So here, the umbrella term is above approach. Now, why would I say that? Because if you look over in Titus... When Paul tells Titus to appoint elders in every place, notice the first term. If anyone, verse 6, is above reproach. If anyone is above reproach. And so the first characteristic of the overseer is his need to be, 
He is to be above reproach. Now, what does this mean? Does it mean to be perfect? No. If it means perfection, no son of Adam shall apply. So what does it mean to be above reproach? It means that a man is notorious for his repentance. That's what it means in essence. It's a man who lives in light of the gospel. Uh, Paul began his letter to Timothy by saying these words. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Jesus Christ our hope. And so this man has been so captured by those realities. God is his Savior. Jesus Christ is his hope. He recognizes apart from Christ there is no hope. He recognizes that he is a sinner, he is a rebel, and he deserves eternal judgment, eternal damnation. And God in his grace and mercy has made provision for his sin in the Son by sending the Son as the substitute to live in our place, die in our place, to be raised from the grave in our place. And this man has been so captured by that gospel that he can't help but live a blameless life. He keeps a short account with God. He keeps a short account with his neighbor. Behind closed doors, he's the same man as he is in the pew. That's what it means to be above reproach. Now he's going to fill that out. Notice in verse 2, the second part, he says, The husband of one wife. Now I do not believe Paul is saying you have to be married. Now, the reason I say that is because the same Greek construction is found over in chapter 5, verse 9, to refer to the widow, who is the wife of one husband. Well, a widow, by definition, is not married. And so it's the same Greek construction, just the opposite gender. So what does this mean, the husband of one wife? Well, that is the normative status for a man. Most men will be married. He's referring to a man who is above reproach with regard to sexual purity. That's what it means. This man hit bats a thousand when it comes to pornography. He's not a flirt. He does not commit adultery on his wife. In fact, we recommend that a man never be one-on-one with the opposite sex. Lest you be tempted or you be falsely accused, which could also harm your ministry. This man is known for fidelity. And and so one of the questions we ask, we've asked both of these men. And I'll just let you know, I ask these men. It's not comfortable to ask the question, do you watch porn? Because if they say that they have watched porn in the last year, this is the term we give. I'd love for it to be 20 years, 30 years, but in the last year, because the last year gives us an idea that a pattern has been established. And these men were able to say to us, no, we do not view pornography. And so I want you to know that's who we're ordaining tonight. We're ordaining men who are faithful to that. They're faithful to their wives because in one of the ways they they, they manifest that is fidelity when it comes to um, the computer screen and the iPhone or whatever they might have. And so, husband of one wife, uh, a boy um, growing up in our church needs to be able to, to see men 
who are models and examples for them. Young girls need to be seen men that are examples for them on what to look for in a, in a, in a future husband. Um, Pure Desire Ministries recently completed a five-year study. Listen to this. They learned in this study, it's a five-year study, so it's not some small study, 68% of evangelical men admitted to watching porn regularly. 68%. 6.8 men out of 10. These are evangelical men, men who, who claim to be evangelical. And... This may be even more horrific. Evangelical pastors, 50% regularly look at porn. 50%. One out of two. That's where we are as a culture. And so the first question we ask among our men, we want our men to be different. Because we know how devastating pornography is. You are drinking poison but the problem with it, you're not just drinking poison that you die. Everyone around you will feel the effects. There's collateral damage with pornography. And so that's a question that we ask and we make sure when we are laying hands on men that they are blameless. They're above reproach when it comes to sexual purity. Notice as well, sober-minded. Uh, some translations read temperate or clear-headed. Uh, this means balanced judgment, free from debilitating excesses or rash behavior. You can't act, act rashly and be a spiritual leader. Thirdly, self-controlled. Um, my favorite de definition of self-controlled is this. It's to be, it's discipline towards ultimate things and self-denial towards sinful things. Discipline towards ultimate things. In other words, his life is consumed with knowing God. His life is consumed that those in his sphere of influence know God. And so he disciplines himself in ultimate things. He's a man of the Bible. He's a man of prayer. He's a man of the church. He's immersed in body life. And then he lives a life of self-denial. When it comes to sinful things. Respectable. Now that word is interesting. Respectable. Cosmios. What does that sound like? Sounds like the cosmos, doesn't it? It's an ordered life. Uh, rather said, it's a reordered life. Your life has been reordered by the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the outward expression of inward self-control. That's what we what Paul would mean by respectable, hospitable. This is a expected of all uh, Christians in 1 Peter 4, Hebrews 13, and it is the mark of the spiritual leader. Able to teach. Now, this is the one adjective, and it's an adjective in the original language. I don't think there's a, a, a right, a perfect way to, to uh, translate this in English. But this is what... The one distinguishing difference between an overseer and a deacon. Which tells us that deacons are not spiritually inferior to, to overseers. In, in fact, in some churches, I was in a church that way at one time. Deacons was like the minor leagues. And when you proved yourself as a deacon, then you'd make the majors. 
which is pastor. Paul didn't see it that way. The role of deacon is as vital as the role of overseer. In fact, they are to have the same spiritual maturity. So our deacons should be as spiritually mature as our overseers and our pastors, our pastors. And so, um, but this is the one distinguishing mark he's able to teach. Now, what does that mean? That means he's sound. Now, we, we put them through the ringer. I want you to know that in our ordination, anything goes. We can ask them any question, and we ask them virtually any question we can think of. We ask them questions on their personal ethics, their moral life, their marriage, their family. But we also ask them challenging theological questions because we want to make sure that these men are orthodox, that they are evangelical. And so we ask questions concerning the Trinity, concerning the person of Christ, hypostatic union of Christ. We ask questions concerning the gospel. What is the gospel? What is sin? We, we ask them questions that they have to be able to answer. They also have to have the gift to be able to, to explain those vital truths. Notice as well, not a drunkard. Now, now, why would Paul say not a drunkard? To be perfectly frank, I am a teetotaler. I do not drink personally, but the scripture clearly does not forbid all alcohol. I think sometimes that might be the wise path to go. But this man is not a drunkard. In that day, wine had alcohol. It did not have as much alcohol as most of our um, alcohol that is sold today. But they did use alcohol in their wine. Or Paul would not have said, do not be drunk with wine. Uh, you can't get drunk on grape juice. You just might get diabetes. Uh, but alcohol lowers your inhibitions and it influences you. And when a person is drunk, he is under the dominion of the creation. When God has constituted us to be his image bearers and our calling, is calling us to take dominion. So drunkenness is the reversal of the created order. We're not to be under the dominion of anything. We are to take dominion as the image of God. And a drunkard also signals that God is not enough. A person who is addicted to alcohol, who has a pattern of, of alcohol abuse or drug abuse, he is essentially saying, she is essentially saying, God needs supplementing. He's not enough. And so Paul says, this man is not to be a drunkard. Uh, as well, he's not to be violent. Um, I love the Christian Standard Version, not a bully. Um, he is not to have a short temper. In fact, the Greek word there is derived from the verb to strike. Overseers will be involved in many highly charged, highly emotionally charged conflicts. And if you have a short temper, it will get exposed. It's that simple. And so if you are pugnacious, as some translations would translate it, it will come out as a pastor. And so this man is not to be violent. He's to be gentle. This is one of the most attractive virtues. There's no English word that really captures it. Forbearing, kind, gracious. All believers are called to be 
gracious or, or gentle. Philippians 4 verse 5 is one of those texts that says, Let your gentleness be made known to all. The Lord is at hand. It was said of our Lord Jesus Christ in 2 Corinthians 10 verse 1. And we are to reflect the very, the very temperate uh, disposition of our Lord Jesus Christ in that regard. And so many, so many of these uh, conflicts that we experience, and uh, we would live, let me just say this. You're going to be criticized. There, there, there may not be, except outside of politics, any position. Well, maybe SEC college football. But uh, there's very few positions in the world that is more critiqued than spiritual leadership. It's just a reality. And if you're not gentle, that is, that you have a disposition of gentleness that's been birthed in you in the Son of God, by the Spirit of God... You will live in perpetual anger. You will live perpetually with your feelings hurt. And so gentleness, it was a term used for horses, thoroughbreds that that were strong and powerful animals, but they were broken. They were powerful, but they were broken animals, trained animals. Of course, we understand Our training, our disposition has come under the dominion of the rule of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice as well, not quarrelsome. Since the day of the first murder, which we know took place in Genesis, men have been fighting each other. Women as well. But Christians are commanded to be different. God hates disunity in the body of Christ. And it goes beyond the, can't we just get along? It goes beyond that. Here's the reason disunity is so destructive in the, in the, in the church of Christ. We are, by nature, alienated from God and alienated from each other. And Christ has come and he has brought reconciliation. He's brought reconciliation with God, 2 Corinthians 5.18. And he has brought reconciliation with each other. Ephesians chapter 2. He himself is our peace. Who has made the two one new man in Christ. And so when we are divisive. We are saying to a watching world. That Christ's victory is not enough for us. We are saying. We are bearing false witness. Against an accomplishment of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so this man cannot be quarrelsome because you're going to be given many natural reasons to be so because unity is at stake. And unity begins, of course, with Christ, but at the instrumental level with the spiritual leaders. You cannot be quarrelsome. And then notice, not a lover of money. In these days, that's generally not the motivating factor in our circles to go into ministry. In certain circles, it is in the prosperity movement. Um, And yet, you can still become very discontented because your friends that you graduated from college with are making more money than you. And so you can be a lover of money and be broke. Uh, Hebrews is the only other place this term is used. Hebrews 13 Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. 
he seems to, the writer there seems to be saying the reason we're not content with what we have is that we do not see God as sufficient. He's, and it, so it's interesting that there the promise is, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's the anecdote. That's the remedy for discontentment when it comes to material possessions. And so Paul says, be above reproach in the church. That's verses 1 to 3. I'm going to make this quick. He also must be above approach in the family. Notice in verses 4 and 5. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So he's equating the household with the church because it's two families. One is a smaller family, nuclear family, and one is a blood-bought family. Family by blood and a blood-bought family. If you can't lead your home at the micro level, Paul says, there's no way you could ever lead a home, a family at the macro level. So what does this mean? It means you love your wife as Christ loved the church, that is cruciform love, and you raise your children in the Lord. That, that's what it means, in short. And then, he must be above reproach in his maturity. Verse 6. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit, fall into the condemnation of the devil. That is, the condemnation that fell on the devil himself. Judgment. What is Paul saying? He's saying that if you're a new believer, the test and the struggles of ministry will either puff you up with, in the sense of arrogance or despair. That's another form of pride, despair, where you believe that there is no hope, that there is uh, nothing, that no fruit that comes out of your labors, and ultimately it can lead to judgment. Not that you can lose your salvation. But, again, Paul uses warnings as means by which we persevere. So, these men are tested men. These men are spiritually mature men. And Paul is saying that is vital. And then finally, he must be approaching the world. Verse 7, therefore, he must be well thought of by outsiders. Let me just say here, what is an outsider? An outsider is, a, is, is Paul describes here as an unbeliever. But outsider is someone who's outside the church. There's no category except for shut-ins. And there are those who are providentially hindered from coming to church. We have them at our church. But there's no category for a, a Christian who is physically able, who intentionally remains outside the local body. Uh, Paul would say an outsider is not of us. And he says, yet... We have a ministry to them. He must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace and to the snare of the devil. Now, I want you to notice in chapter 6, verse 1, Paul has the world in mind. He says, let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Paul recognizes that a man has to be above reproach in his community. So that he'll have an evangelistic opportunity in his community. Let me close with these words from John Christensen. 
very insightful on Paul and the apostles. He says they were often persecuted, though they were never brought up on moral charges. Isn't that interesting? Morality, ethics were never the issue. They were slandered as deceivers and imposters on account of their preaching. And this because they could not attack their moral characters and lives. For why did not one say of the apostles that they were fornicators, unclean, or covetous persons, but that they were deceivers, which relates to their preaching only? Must it not be that their lives were irreproachable? And we are laying hands tonight on two men that I believe would be considered irreproachable. Men who are above reproach, men who are blameless. One more thought as we close here on this. The devil's mentioned twice in this passage. There is spiritual warfare aimed at the spiritual leaders. And so keep in mind, as you go about your ministry that God has called you to, to put on that full armor of God every day. Take your stand against the devil's schemes. Because our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the rulers and the authorities and the powers of darkness and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Guys, if you would come forward, we want to lay hands on you. I think it would be good to have their families up here. If, if, if the families could, and we could lay hands on, and we could have some ladies come lay hands on, our, on their wives and their daughter, and all ordained men, such a privilege. Praise God for this. Father, thank you for this glorious privilege. Lord, we thank you that you purchased the church of Christ with the blood of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in so doing, you remain who you are as holy and righteous and yet gracious and merciful to sinners like us. But Lord, you didn't leave us in the church leaderless. You've raised up men of God to lead your church. You raised up men to go to the nations that new churches might be formed. Thank you for these two brothers, one called to the pastoral ministry, one called to the nations, both called to the nations, but one called uniquely to carry that gospel to the nations as a missionary. Lord, I thank you for these brothers. I thank you that we can say with confidence they are above reproach. I thank you that we can say with confidence that they are mighty in the scriptures. Lord, that they're able to teach because that they love the word of God. They know the word of God. They're students of the word of God. And Lord, they believe the word of God to be sufficient, to be authoritative. Lord, to be inerrant and infallible. To be the very word of God. And Lord, I pray, Lord, as we commission them tonight. I pray you would fill them with the knowledge of your will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding that they would have walks and their, their wives, their children would have walks worthy of the calling 
fully pleasing you in every good work, being fruitful, strengthened with all might, according to your glorious power. Father, I pray that the word of God, that they will be preaching and teaching and evangelizing would bear much fruit. And we pray, Lord, that you would protect their wives, their marriages, and their children. We pray your grace and mercy on them. We pray you would grow them in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if there's any children or even grandchildren one day who aren't saved, Lord, that you would save them by your grace and mercy in your son. Lord, we just lift these two men to you. We lift their families to you. We thank you for this privilege. And we ask these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.